Well, good morning. Welcome again, everyone. Uh, here this morning, we're gonna, I'm going to keep going on the sermon this morning, on the sermon series titled, uh, Who Am I? Finding Our Identity in Jesus. Uh, so we're going to ask you, keep asking the question, who am I? Who am I in Christ? Who am I as a follower of Jesus? Uh, what makes me who I am? And, of course, a lot of things make us who we are, right? Uh, you know, there's genetics, of course. Uh, there's our communities, you know, the schools, the neighborhoods, the places we grew up with. Uh, and, of course, the biggest one of those, usually developmentally, is our families, right? And the kind of families we grow up in can make a huge difference in how we develop as adults. It's a huge influence on us, maybe more than any other influence. Uh, because, of course, our families are around us, right? They form us, and, and they, they raise us when we're young and new, and what is normal to us is formed by them and becomes normal in the world. And when you're really little, of course, your parents are your world, right? That's all you have. And um, so, and they teach us. You know, they teach us about the things that make our world what it is. And so, I want you to imagine a couple different scenarios for growing up here. One, in one scenario, the kid's got loving parents. And the parents are affectionate. And they're warm and they're supportive. Uh, they say words like, I love you a lot. And they give the kids a big hug when the knees get skidded or the kids on the playground aren't nice or the sports game doesn't go as planned. And in this scene, in this scenario, the kid grows up love thinking that this is how the world is, right? Everybody is uh, kind and hugging and loving and forgiving and supportive. Uh, and this is the world as it should be, right? And, uh, and so how does that kid grow up? That kid will grow up into being a tr much more trusting adult, right? They'll grow up with a sense that normal world is people are at least a little bit trustworthy, and they don't always do mean things to you, and so you just kind of assume this is how the world goes. In the other scenario, this kid grows up with parents who are not always around, and they, you spend lots of time being shuffled to uh, custom pro from custom program to custom program, and your parents, are, they push you relentlessly to achieve success, but they rarely cheer you on when you get it. They just let you know when you failed. And so you end up getting lectures after you work all the way to get almost to the top, and you get, well, I don't want to hear excuses. You see a little Susie over there crying? You know, you know you, she cried, suck it up and be tough. Because remember... Second place is first loser. You remember those shirts? You could get them in like the 90s, early zeros, and you could actually buy a shirt. Second place is first loser. I'm like, I thought first loser was last place. Shouldn't second place just be second place? I mean, that's pretty good sometimes, you know? But th that, that was the ethic, right? That was the slogan. And in this scenario, the parents demand a lot. And they push, push hard, but there's not a lot of affection. They're going to make you tough. And they interact mostly when they think you've done something wrong. And do you hear, I love you? Well, not like you never do, but not a whole lot. You get your validation when you achieve something, right? 
So you get a smile when you get success. So you learn as a kid that being loved means achieving success. I do something that they want me to do. I get the trophy or the grade or the wonderful magical golden admissions ticket to such and such school. And they give me something, attention, validation. So how are these two kids going to grow up viewing relationships and people? How will they fare in the world of interactions? Well, I can tell you what I've seen. Uh, the, parents, the parents who are really loving all the time, the ones that are really affectionate, the ones who are affectionate whether you win or lose, the ones where the home is a warm, safe place, their kids are probably going to grow up a little bit more trustworthy and probably a little bit more open with people. The kid who grows up with the parents who only show support when they do something, that kid is going to grow up, I'm going to bet, a bit more suspicious, uh, mistrustful, uh, view love and relationships with a certain uh, maybe transactional character, Right? Because in his family, love is a currency that you withhold as motivation for success. And you don't, you don't just give it out willy-nilly. You have to earn it. And you learn that people seem to love you more when you do something for them, but when you don't, they can get nasty. So you figure out how to give people what they want so you can get what you want. And it's something that you absorb as you grow up and it becomes a part of you. So one kid is going to grow up with a very unconditional, kind of gratuitous view of love. Something given willy-nilly. And the other grows up seeing love as a reward. It's transactional. Now, let's take this one step farther. If something is transactional... That also makes it conditional. So what do I mean by that? It's conditional. It's only good as long as you can produce the goods. The results. I'll give you love as long as you keep winning trophies. What if I fail to win trophies? What if I just have a bad day at the very end? Well, then it gets taken away. And you get scolded for being lazy. In a transaction, it's, it's not about me. It's about what you can get from me. And when I can't produce, the transaction is over. So there's always this fear in the back of your mind of failure, of somebody walking out on you, or of being replaced by somebody who does produce the goods. You know, it's what I imagine sort of these sort of trophy marriages being like, right? You know, you got the rich guy who's famous and got all the women around him, and he's got a wife, but, you know, they're getting older, and she's getting older. She isn't 20 anymore, no matter how many hours a day she spends in the gym. And since this is really about a transaction where he provides money and she provides personal needs, you live in fear every day of someone else coming in and making a better offer and getting replaced. Well, that's not love. That's a transaction. And transactions are conditional. And conditionality creates fear and mistrust because that transaction can always be broken up and people, therefore, become hard to trust. So to get back to it, I think we learn to love by how we are loved. 
I think we learn to love by how we are loved. And no matter where you start in life, no matter what kind of family situation you come from, you can, I believe you can always start again and learn to love again. Why? Because you are loved by God, unconditionally and eternally. Who am I? Among other things, I am loved by God. Not because you did something to earn it, but because God just chooses to give it. Why? Because that's who he is. It's his nature, right? He doesn't love because he needs people's responses. He's just, he's, he is just fine without us. And he's so loving, he gives love even to people who hates his guts. So Richard Dawkins, God loves you whether you like it or not. Although, you know, I don't think little Richie would like to think about that that way. And I don't think he'd like me calling him that. It says right here, John 1, chapter 4. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. We don't love because we choose to of our own power. In essence, we don't have that power. We can't love more than we have been loved. We can't love what we have not been given, but with God, it has all been given. He loved us first. And we learn from him, experiencing it, taking it in, absorbing it. It doesn't matter if you found God as an adult or you grew into it. The presence of God there is love, and from there we can love others. I get afraid sometimes that we miss this in religion. Or maybe it gets missed in the bigger picture about religion. You know, I think too often God gets portrayed as transactional. You know, I go to church, or I say this or that, or I pray this way, uh, or, I, or I don't do certain things, and, and because of that, God will give me spiritualness or a new car or better grades or something. It's transactional. I do for God, and God does for me. And so I have faith, and then God gets me that promotion. I give worship, and I get a new car. But what if I don't worship enough, or, or show enough faith, or pray hard enough, or do, do, do enough projects? I don't know. Well, in that, view, in that view of how you see God, well, then God might not get you the stuff you want. You have to earn it. It's a transaction, remember? And, and if it doesn't happen then there's always an answer for it, right? They all, those preachers always have an answer. If you didn't get the promotion and the grades in the new car, it's because you didn't have enough faith. How do I measure it? I don't know. I took out my faithometer. No, we don't have that. So you always, when you approach God that way, there's always this little kind of fear in the back of your mind that's always present, that's always nagging on you, that you might not have done everything God wants so God will... Walk on you like a celebrity with a new model. One of the things I found when I've talked to people who've spent time in prison and they found God there is that they finally discover what it means to be loved without conditions. Because a lot of them are not, they didn't come from the greatest homes. And when they were kids, adults were not always good to them. And people could not be trusted. And so often they would get into crime because that's at least a way to get stuff. It's a lonely life, but, you know, and everyone's got an angle on you and you've got an angle on them and 
everyone's always kind of in a little state of, will they trust me? Will they betray me? And now, they, now you're sitting there in a cell and all the transactions have fallen apart and it's just you and your Bible and the Lord. And you realize that God really does love you even though you haven't done anything to earn it. And for many, it's the first time they can look up and see that somebody really loves me and without strings. And that's an amazing feeling. The first time someone really loves you for who you are. And now you can start to give that back. Remember what it says in 1 John. There is no love in fear, for love casts out fear. They're opposites, and they war at each other inside of us. One side always wants to mistrust, to verify everything, to make sure everybody proves themselves, to trust no one, to only believe it when you see it. One side wants to view people with suspicion and view the worst and treat them like they're dangerous and threats until and only until we have some tangible proof that they aren't all the possible bad things that they could be but if you live on that side, you're never satisfied. You're never satisfied because you're trying to prove the negative. You're trying to prove what they're not. It's like I was hearing an interview of a private investigator on the radio, and they're asking him about what he does. And he said, uh, you know, his, his, least favorite, his least favorite job is when spouses will come to hire him to try to prove that they're cheating or not cheating. And, especially, and, and he says, he always hates those gigs because he tells them, look, you know, I, I could sit and watch all day. You know, I could sit and watch all day. I, I, could, I could do it all. I could find absolutely nothing and come back after a week, two weeks of snooping and give you a report that says, yeah, he went to work and he went home. And the, the craziest thing is that he, you know, stopped and got an extra QT on the way home he didn't tell you about. But that wouldn't solve the trust issue because if deep down you're still suspicious, you're still suspicious. And you could say, well, maybe you didn't, you just didn't catch it. And he says, that's not, then you don't need a private investigator, you need a therapist. Because you, that's the nature of fear, right? It's never satisfied. There's always that possibility of being hurt. The other side of us just wants to have someone who loves us you know, for who we are, and, and not have to worry about that. But the side often is weaker because fear and mistrust, man, they're hard-baked into us. Trust comes through experience, through love, and it requires you to be vulnerable. And that's really the essence of a relationship, right? You open yourself up to someone, you're trusting them, you're being honest, and you're trusting someone with yourself, and you're trusting someone with yourself when you have no reassurance that it's going to work out perfectly. And it's putting yourself in someone's hands and just letting yourself be there. And yes, sometimes you will do that and get burned. And Shakespeare's line is still true. It is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Because if you don't put yourself out there, you won't get it at all. As followers of Jesus... As people of God, we should not need to be fearful and suspicious and mistrusting as a default way of looking at the world. We shouldn't because we have the love that comes from God 
and, and that love from God is certain, and it's generous, and it's undeserved, and it's there always. We have that love from God, and so we shouldn't have to fall into fear. We shouldn't, but we still do. We're human. So we return to God, and we keep opening ourselves up so that spirits can fill us with that love that drives away fear, that builds trust, that prevents hate, that, that, that gives peace, and that makes us more loving people. Amen.